Let me invite us to bow our heads together. Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you. As we sang, Lord, and as we acknowledge you, Lord God, that you are our Father. Thank you for setting that standard for us. That, Lord, while we may honor and celebrate or remember our own fathers today, Lord, we look to you and we say thank you. We want to praise you, Lord God, and honor you today. And as we go before you, Lord, in, in the reading of your word, in our time in your word, Lord, we just pray that your spirit would move in our hearts, in our ears, in our minds, that it's your voice, Lord God, that stirs in us and speaks to us, Lord. And we lift this to you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, what comes to mind when you think of your most cherished memories, childhood memories? Anything particular come to mind when you think of your, your favorite childhood memories? Some of you might need a little longer to think about it, so I'll give you a second to think about that. Your favorite childhood memories. I thought about that this week, and one of the first things I thought of when I thought about my favorite childhood memories was when I have a, I'm one of six kids, uh, I'm the youngest, and so by the time I came around, all my siblings were a little bit older than me, and they were like teenagers, and you know how hard it is to get teenagers to stay home, you know what I mean? But one of my favorite childhood memories is when we were, our whole family would get together and we'd play games. And, you know, my dad was not the most animated guy, not the most excited guy. But when we played games together, and when we say together, we're meaning against each other, right? We're in teams. Man, he just, the competitiveness came out. He got all excited, right? We're about winning in my family right? So I remember just playing games together and just how excited he got playing games because the family was together. Another childhood memory I thought of was like Saturday mornings. Saturday mornings for us growing up was cartoons. So I remember getting up in the morning, getting a bowl of cereal, and getting my favorite blanket. I'll get to that later. And just watching Saturday morning cartoons all morning. And then when my dad was around, We'd watch WWF wrestling together Saturday mornings. I'd say, hey, wrestling's on, Dad. Okay, and we'd watch it together. You know, I don't know if you have fond memories like that, but if as a father, uh, when you're, it's your children's birthdays, a lot of those fond memories come to mind. I think of my children. I, I think of each one holding them as a baby in your arms, singing to them to sleep. You know, that those, those fond memories. Uh, we celebrated Josiah's birthday this past week or so. And one of the things I think of is when he was younger and we played tackle football in the living room. You know, we'd go and try to tackle each other. That stopped as he got a little bit bigger. You know, uh, it wasn't as easy. So when it's not as easy, that's when we're like, oh, that was good. Okay, let's move on to video games. And we played video games, you know. Fond memories. Don't you wish that you can have more of them. Don't you wish you can remember more of those positive 
memories and experiences. Last week, um, I shared some studies done on people who experienced ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. And I know that can be a very difficult topic. We looked at how the different adverse childhood experiences people face and the effects of those children as they get into adults, into adulthood, how it affects their development, it affects their behavior, the mentality, their view in life. Um, I do want to share a quote, you know, from, from this was uh, referring, referring to a study. It says, researchers at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in Baltimore published a study in JAMA, or JAMA, J-A-M-A, the Journal of the American Medical Association, Pediatrics, Revealed, the study revealed that positive childhood experiences are just as important as negative ones and can actually help offset the fallout from adverse events, right? They actually did studies to show that positive experiences can also help with those who experienced adverse childhood experiences. And it made me kind of think about it, like, well, while studies of looking at how negative or adverse experiences can affect uh, adulthood. It made me think, can there be such a study to look at positive childhood experiences? And it made me think, can that even be possible? Because can you actually measure the impact of positive childhood experiences? Like how many positive experiences would it take to buffer or to counterbalance the negative ones. And I don't think there's, I don't think, I think that's impossible to really get a study to measure how many positive ones it would take to counter the negative ones. Because it seems like, you know, I thought about this, it seems like it made me wonder, why is it that negative or adverse childhood experiences seem to stifle the positive ones so much? Why is it that the negative ones, the adverse experiences, seem to affect us more than the positive ones? And then I start to imagine and I start to realize, I think the enemy really relishes sabotaging our understanding of ourselves sabotaging our understanding of God. I think the enemy really delights in us questioning God. If he can keep us low, our heads low, destroy our understanding, our relationship with God, just dwell on the negative experiences we have, then he'll cause us to be ineffective warriors for our King. He'll get our relationship with God. Last uh, several, about a month now, we've been resting on this verse in Genesis. Genesis 1, verse 26. And we've been on this verse for a while. And I knew going into the study, we're going to spend a lot of time on this verse because it's very profound. And it addresses a lot of the issues and crises that many of us deal with today, whether you're in the church or out of the church, we deal with these things today, these crises today. So we're on this verse, but 
here's some, I don't know if this is good news or not. Next week, we are going to go into chapter 2, all right? That's a promise-ish, I think, all right? Verse 26, though. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we've been on this verse for a while now, bringing home the point from the time of creation, God's intention for mankind was to be his visible representation among creation. Created in his image and according to his likeness. That was God's intention. And he created them male and female. And we talked about it weeks ago about that's how God created we are created to be patterned after. And we talked about how like genetics, right? When we have kids and our kids resemble their parents in different ways. We were created with the intention to be in the likeness of God. But we've been talking about how sinful hearts and the sin of people led, all, led to all forms of idolatry. And we'll look at that as we continue in through the Old Testament. And we see how the effects causes us to have these broken, distorted views and understandings of ourselves. We, we took a few weeks to be talking about those things, right? And I want to pick up where we left off last week. And I mentioned last week how a generation ago, a common mentality when it came to your childhood Right, The approach to your childhood is like, you know what? That was of the past. It happened. Deal with it. Move on. Maybe some of you have had that kind of uh, advice spoken to you or you had that idea communicated to you before. Whatever happened to you before, just let it go. Just move on. But the reality is a lot of people don't realize the effect their child experiences had on themselves. We don't realize how much our childhood experiences affect how we view things, how we see people, how we, be, how we become adults, how we become parents, how we are to our spouse, how we approach our family life. We don't realize that some of those experiences affect how we do adulthood. So people go through their entire life and they wrestle they wrestle with their self-image. They wrestle with how they see themselves, right? Whether it's unhealthy or not. Then leads to healthy views of God. But see, my hope wasn't to leave last week in itself. Because last week, I, I granted, we talked about some heavy stuff. But my hope isn't just to reveal things, pull the band-aid off our wounds and say, well, there it is. Deal with it. My hope is that we can move on from our broken experiences and what we've wrestled with all these years, if you can relate to that, and move towards healing. Move towards being able to live out who God created us to be. Who God truly intended us to be. So if you can relate to feeling stuck with an unhealthy self-image, understanding of how God created you and who he created you to be. There's three things I want us to recognize in order to have change. And the first thing to recognize 
is the need for change, right? We can't be helped if we don't recognize we need help, right? We have to recognize we, if we, there's a need for change. We have to recognize who you need to go to for the change, right? If you need a doctor, I advise you to look up the credentials of the doctor. If this person's a good doctor to go to. If you have some heart issues, don't go to a podiatrist. I think that's pretty common sense. Who you go to. And the third thing we need to recognize is we need to recognize what you need to change. Perhaps one of the most difficult truths to confront is the need for change. No one likes to be told there's a need for change. And we can get so comfortable in our brokenness, right? We can get so comfortable in how we view ourselves that we just accept this is how it's going to be. And over the course of time, that broken feeling, that broken self-image becomes like a security blanket for us. It's like a self-defense mechanism. I mentioned about my, my favorite blanket. All right, so there was a blanket that I had as a kid. And I loved it because it was kind of like satin. And so in the summer months, it was nice and cool. And I had bad eczema on my hands, so the coolness of a material was very you know, soothing. So I loved this blanket because it was satin. It was so cool, and, and you can grab it with you. It was portable. It wasn't too big. And so I took it with me ever. I even took it to college. I kept it all the way through high school, brought it to college. And by that point, you know, the stitching was coming off. Cotton was coming out of the blanket and stuff. But it still felt good. So I still kept it. Well, you know, I met Jamie, got together, eventually got married. And yes, that blanket still came with us into our marriage. And then one devastating moment happened one day. She broke the news to me and said, you know, Mike, it's time to let this thing go. Now, in my mind, I was thinking, there's no way we're throwing away this blanket. And she assured me, no, no, I'm not. No, I wouldn't do that. We're not talking about throwing it away. We're just going to fold it neatly and put it somewhere safe. Because I didn't realize that, you know what? While I cherish this thing, it wasn't the most beautiful blanket. I don't know if orange is any of your favorite colors. It's not mine. And this was a bright orange, orange blanket. And it had the kind of like the Korean, Asian decorated flowers and stuff. I just say that it is not the most manly blanket. And so she said, you know, it's time to let it go. Let's put it away somewhere. You can look at it fondly, but we are not putting it on our bed or on our furniture, you know? But you see, we can have that mentality with our own sense of brokenness. It's like our security blanket that we've gotten so used to it, we do not want to let it go. It has become our self-defense mechanism. Can you and I be convinced that how we've been seeing ourselves has been used by the enemy to sabotage our relationship with God? Can we convince ourselves that the way we've been seeing ourselves, the unhealthy way, the unhealthy image that we've been looking at and what we've been believing has been used by the enemy 
to destroy and sabotage our understanding of God and how he created us to be? And can we entrust the word of God as our perfect image to truly tell us how we ought to see ourselves? This is how we ought to see ourselves, not the broken mirrors or the distorted mirrors that we've been looking at before. Last week I mentioned Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus saying to people, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my load is light. And we saw how Jesus is calling out the weary and heavy laden. He sees your weariness. He sees the burdens you're carrying, and he says, come to me. Come to me. Let me give you the rest you need. And he says, learn from me. Learn from, let me teach you. Let me show you that over the course of time, you are learning from me. He wants you to experience his gentleness, his humble heart. In other words, he has time for you. We talked about some many children grow up with this feeling that my parents don't have time for me. No one has time for me. He says, come to me. I have time for you. You are not too insignificant. You are not so dirty that you can't come to me. Again, recognizing who we need to go to for the problems that we experience. We all experience problems, whether it's deep in childhood or even now. But the question is, who do we go to for healing and for help? So Jesus says, come to me. But then perhaps the most difficult part is following through with what needs to change, right? That's difficult. When you're, you get to a certain age, you go to the doctor for a physical. I dread hearing the three words. You know what those three words are? Diet and exercise. Those are three words I, I, I dread hearing. Because those are two words, two of the three words. I can do the and, but the two words that goes in between or on the bookends is a little difficult. I like my food and I like chilling out. <laughs> Give me a ball, play a game, invite me to play. I'm like, okay, I'll do it. But then I want to rest. Following through is often the most difficult, especially when it comes to change. I want to refer back to a Bible verse, a passage that we looked at two years ago. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice how this verse brings us full circle to Genesis 1. How's that? We learn in Genesis 1 when God created, He created each in each day, in each phase of creation, He saw that it was good. So by the end of His creative account, He looked at everything He made and He saw that it was very good. And we saw how God is that standard for what is good. It was pleasing to God. That's what that word means. It was pleasing to him. 
So what he saw brought pleasure to him, and he declared it good. In fact, it was very good at the end of the day, or at the end of the creative account. And we see here what Paul says. He says, present your bodies a living, a holy sacrifice. What? Acceptable or pleasing to God. Present yourselves pleasing to God. Brings us full circle. He created us to be pleasing to him. There was the fall and there was sin, and we'll get to that later. But when we're in Christ, we're born again, and what are we created again to be? Pleasing to God. And that's how God intended us to be, to be pleasing to him. But we've kind of gotten it backwards as people. We have it all backwards. We want God to be pleasing to us, right? We want God to be pleasing to us. We expect God to please us by our standards, by what we want, what we think is good, what we think is right. So we have that expression, you know, God, I want you to be pleasing to me. I want you to do things that makes me feel good and pleasure. Paul corrects this mentality in verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of the mind, of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So what does Paul say? He says, do not pattern yourself after this world. You want to be pleasing to God, do not pattern yourself after this world. Do not chase the images the world dictates to you. Do not chase the standards that the world presents to you that you have to feel like you have to measure up to. Because that's what the enemy wants us to do. The enemy wants us to chase after the idols and the images of this world to get us our eyes not fixed on God, who we ought to be copying, who you ought to resemble, ought to give pleasure to, and we want to go chasing after these other images. Right? You think about what the patterns we admire. What are some of the patterns you admire? Perhaps it's, I don't know, physical appearance, status, popularity, likability, success, achievements. These are these models, these things that we look at and we compare ourselves to and we value. But Paul says, renewing our minds is necessary for the changes that we need to make. If we want to be pleasing to God, we have to renew our minds. In other words, a change for the better. That's what renewing means. A change for the better. So again, this speaks to a lot of the temptations we face, right? About pride. So the word of God must be our mirror and Jesus is who we go to for truth, for healing and restoration. And if there's going to be some change in our minds, there's some four areas. We're going to cover two of them today. Not going to cover all four. But there's four areas of our minds, our thinking that needs to be changed. And the first thing is we need to confront sin. Part of looking in the perfect mirror of God's word is seeing sin for what it is. We may be victims of other people's horrible behavior, 
thought of that. We talked about that last couple of weeks. We may have been victims of other people's horrible, wrongful behaviors that we did not ask for, we did not deserve, whatever it may be. I'm sure we've all been victims in some case like that. However, many times our unhealthy thinking, our unhealthy behavior is in response to those things. In other words, we are accountable for the actions we take. We can't control what happened to us in the past. We can't go back in time as much as many of us would like to. We love to go back and change everything. And we all know we can't do that. Nor can we ever control what someone does. But we are accountable for the actions we take. And much of our unhealthy condition is a product of the decisions we make. Sometimes, many times, it's in response to the things that are done to us right? The things that are done to us, we act out and we do things that we shouldn't do. That's what sin is. Sin is that which misses the mark. It's an offense. It's wrongdoing. But who's the standard for that offense? Who establishes, who defines what is wrongdoing? Out there in the world, they'll say, well, we are. We decide what is right and wrong. But that's why the world's messed up. God says, I am the standard for what is good and what is acceptable and what is wrongdoing, what is not pleasurable to God. He is that standard. You may think, well, that doesn't sound too positive. I was thinking about that. If God's our standard of, of wrongdoing and missing the mark, for somebody who struggles with that burden of feeling like you're always missing the mark, Right? You don't have to show, you don't, don't raise your hands. But how many of us here have struggled with that feeling of that, I feel like I'm always missing the mark. I feel like I've never gotten it right. I feel that way because I've been told that a lot. Right? A lot of kids grow up feeling that they're always going to miss the mark. They're always up to wrongdoing. They can never do anything right. And when you grow up, this idea of sin, of always missing the mark, it's not a very hopeful message. People are like, man, I'm always going to miss the mark. I'm never going to change. But the hope, the hope of that message of confronting sin is that it leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness and cleansing. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We can't change our past, but God can change our present and he can change our future. We don't have to dwell in those sins. We can receive forgiveness. You can receive healing. So we need to confront sin. We need to have that change of mentality. The second area we need to change is contentment. Contentment. What is contentment? You guys know what it means to be content? It's that condition where you feel like there's no need for aid or support. Sufficiency of the necessities of life. A mind contented with its lot. In other words, I'm good. I don't need anything more. I'm okay. How many of us 
feel content right now? Again, you don't have to raise your hands, right? Let me ask you, if you were able to, I, to design your ideal self, all right, I'll let you do this mental exercise. You can design your ideal self. Would you even be yourself? Would you even resemble yourself? Right? If you look in the mirror, you're like, oh, my ears, I wish they were different. Oh, my nose, I wish it was smaller or if it was a different shape. Oh, my hair, it's too straight, it's too curly, it's too short, it's too long, it's too thick, it's too thin. My feet, my hands, my joints, all those things. If you could design your ideal self, would you even be yourself? That's a t- that was kind of tough. When I thought about that. I'm like, wow. Yeah, I don't even know if I would be myself, right? And the very notion that we all look different. If you look in the room, go ahead, look around. Look around. Look around you. Do you see anybody who looks just like you? I'm looking around. You all look very different. Okay, some siblings look really close, all right? Besides that, you all look very different. And see, that gives us value that we do look different, that we are different. That gives value. But see, that doesn't satisfy us because we look all around and we look at other people, their looks, their success, their, what they drive, all those things, and we say, man, I want to look just like that. I want my life to look just like that. And so we chase that. We also learn to complain at a very young age, don't we? We learn to complain at a very young age. Those of you who still have young kids, you're like, amen, right? Children don't realize how harmful, how hurtful their complaints can be to parents. My parents, when I was, by the time I was growing up, my parents didn't have much. And I looked at my other friends, and it seemed like they could have whatever they want. They can go wherever they want, do whatever they want. They took all these vacations, all these things. What did you do this summer? Oh, I went to Europe for a month. What did you do? I watched reruns for a month, you know. I had the nerve to ask my dad for money knowing he didn't have a job. And the pain of me complaining that I didn't have something that he must have experienced, that he must have felt. The pain of feeling that as a parent, you can't provide what you want to provide for your kids, right? We criticize. We look at other things. And what we end up doing is criticizing God. Not realizing that the people we envy, the people we look to, to want to be like, They're looking at other people. They're looking at other people and say, I want to be like them. I want to look like them. I want this life. I want that life. And what you don't realize is no one's satisfied. No one's happy. No one's content. I like what Hebrews says, 13 verse 5. Let your character be free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will not desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? What a great verse. Be content with what we have, knowing that we have the Lord. 
What else can anyone do for us or to us? I think the one area of contentment that is perhaps the most damaging, it's not even the materialism. It's not even what we want to look like or want to be like. The most damaging area of contentment is, is God's love enough for me? Is God's love enough for me? Am I content with just God's love? Is that enough for me? Am I content with God's love even when it's lacking from everybody else? When I'm not receiving the kind of love I want from my parents, my siblings, my friends, my loved ones, my spouse, my children, can we still fall in that contentment of God's love? That you know what? God's love is enough. That's hard, isn't it? Because we crave love from other people. We crave affection from other people. Parents, one of the most, uh, you know, we've all, you know, I can't say we all, many of us, or typically we often hear from our parents, I love you, right? I don't know if any of you, you heard I love you from your parents or your, your, your parents complimented, oh, you look so beautiful today. You look so nice today. Hopefully you hear that. If you don't, um, I hope you do. And if you're a parent in here, here's your admonition, all right? But as a kid, when you hear I love you from your parents or you say, oh, you look nice today, you look good today, there's a certain age, but that doesn't mean as much. You're like, ah. You say that because you have to say that. You're my parent. You will love me anyways, right? It loses its effectiveness when we hear that sometimes. Up until we don't have it anymore, and then we miss it. Then we realize how much we love it. But that's a hurtful time. There's a hurtful stage as a parent where your kids don't no longer... Your love for them is enough for them because they want the love and affection from a boyfriend or girlfriend. They want to get married. They want to have their friends, those things like that. But we get the same way with God so much. God, you love me. Okay, I know, but you're supposed to love me. You created me. You died for me. But I want more. I want something else. And we get so used to hearing that that we forget the magnitude and the blessings of God's love. Notice what, you know, I love what God says to Israel, who was idolatrous, who was unfaithful, who at this point was taken into captivity, into Babylon. Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, God says to them, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Do you catch that? I have loved you, you idolatrous, adulterous, unfaithful people. I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I have drawn you with loving kindness. That's beautiful. That's the God that we have. He wants relationship driven by love. And it extends beyond to the sinners, not just Israel. He says in Romans 5, or Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Before we ever made any decision of faith, God loved you and paid the price 
for your sin. That's his love. God extends his love to us. And we must learn and accept that, you know what, God's love is more than enough. And we must learn to receive his love and not fight it. Not fight it. Who are we to say whether God loves us or not, right? We don't dictate it. I can't look at you and say, you know what? I think God will love you. If I'm looking at you, it's not personal. All right, just letting you know. I don't know about you. I won't look at anybody. All right, I'm going to look at the empty floor. I don't know about you. I'll look in the camera. I don't know about you. We don't do that. God says, I love you. So why do we fight God's love so much? Why do we fight receiving God's love so much? I think it's a whole deception. The whole deception is that because we may not feel deserving of his love, that we should not receive it. Again, don't raise your hands. Have you felt that way? If you feel like I don't deserve God's love, so I shouldn't receive it. That's a deception from hell. That is a lie from hell. That is a half-truth believing the whole, as a whole. Because none of us are deserving of God's love. None of us deserve God's love. But that's not the point. We don't deserve God's love because we can't do anything to earn it. We will always fall short. But it's Christ's love for us that we can receive his love. We don't determine whether we deserve God's love or not. God says, you know what? I love you. I have loved you. You don't have to feel deserving of his love. But see, the deception from hell is for getting us to believe that we should not receive his love either. And that's a lie. And that's a lie the enemy wants you to believe. That you should not receive his love either. We see, refusing God's love is another expression of self-pride. Accepting God's love also means we accept being content who God created us to be. Let me give you, finish off with some marinade. If you're new, you think, what's marinade? Right, and I'll just give you a quick brief. Why I say marinade is, marinade is what seasons meat and stuff. I don't know if we have any marinated meat or not, but marinade seasons meat, right, to make it more flavorful. The meat soaks in the marinade. All right, I'm getting hungry. Something to soak in in our minds, to think about, to flavor our minds. The first thing, what sin in our life is presenting, preventing us from healing and changing? What sin in our life is preventing us from healing and changing? We miss the mark daily. We're going to mess up daily. That's without question. But are we doing things that is directly sabotaging our understanding of who we are and who God created us to be? You may be influenced, you may hear voices. 
that you should not be listening to because they're lying to you. Second thing, what areas in our life do we need to practice contentment? What areas in our life do we need to practice contentment? Where we need to be content with what God's provided us, who he created us to be, what he's done in our life. Parents, I told some of the fathers, all right, I'm going to lay the hammer on some of you dads. I was joking, but if there's a moment, it's now. So get ready. Parents, we must be examples of contentment. And I include myself in this. I'm speaking with, for my, to myself as well. We have to practice contentment for our children. Teaching them how to be content. Parents don't realize how hurtful our complaints can feel to our children. How often do we complain about our children? either directly to them or to other people. We don't realize because maybe perhaps we forgot or we pushed it away of our own parents and our own childhood experiences. But are we teaching our kids to grow up thinking that they will never be enough because they're always doing something wrong? Or they never look right. They need to do this. You need to eat more. You need to sleep more. You need to exercise more. You need to dress differently. You need to cut your hair. You need to do this. All, all these kind of things. Whether or not that's true or not, I don't know. But are we teaching our kids contentment? We don't need everything. I, when I got, I got this phone, when it came out, I won't say what it is as, you know, being blamed for product placement or anything. And a year in, what happens? The new model comes out, and I was eyeing it. And I told my son, hey, I might have found a, a deal. And I remember the look he gave me. I don't know what his thoughts were, but the look he gave me was like, you just got a new phone, and you want another one? And right there, it struck me. I said, hmm. That's true. We struggle so much with contentment. We have to practice contentment and we have to teach our children to be content with what God has given you in the moment and in the time. And if he so blesses you more, praise God. Praise God. I want to end with this. The Lord can renew our minds and renew the broken ideas with refreshing, renewing truth. We don't have to settle with the things that we believed ourselves to be. And I don't know if you're wondering this, but why am I wearing a t-shirt? I'm wearing this t-shirt because it was given to me for, for my birthday. And uh, thank you. Is he in here? Where, where is he? Oh, where is he? Joe's here somewhere. He gave me this t-shirt and it says, the devil saw me with my head down and thought he'd won until I said, amen. And I had this message in mind. I, when he gave me that, I was like, oh, I got to wear that t-shirt. Because the enemy wants to keep your head low. Keep it low. All you see 
is there. You can't look up. But I pray that if our heads are down low, it's in prayer going to the God who will speak truth into your life and will resist and fight what he's trying to do in your understanding of who he is. So that you can be, and you and I can be warriors for our king and live the life that God intended us to be and to live. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we come before you and I just thank you. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you are our heavenly father. I thank you that you are a God of truth. There is no deceit in you. But Lord, you also want to speak truth to the changes we need to make in our life. Not to shame us, but to heal us, to forgive us. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here, Lord God, who's being confronted with their own sin and hasn't had forgiveness yet, hasn't asked for forgiveness, that you have extended your forgiving, gracious, merciful love to them. That if they confess their sin to you, you are faithful and righteous and just to forgive them of their sins and to cleanse them of all unrighteousness. That Jesus, you died on the cross for our sin. You paid the price, but you resurrected from the dead. You defeated death so that we may have new life. And if there's anyone here who needs to confess that to you, Lord, I pray that they confess it to you now, that you may bring healing and forgiveness to their life. We thank you and lift us to Jesus in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.